Well, since today is Mother's Day, it opened the possibility of giving a talk about parenting. And what it comes down to is really something like resiliency, responding, and parenting. Um, I was fortunate in Danae saving my bacon uh, by giving me a really great article, which will be the basis of this talk. And um, parenting doesn't just apply, actually, to being a parent, because not everyone here is. But we've all been the product of parents. I was going to say victims, but <laughs> actually <laughs> products of parenting. And it, it really, these things, I think, apply wherever you're working. Are you in a group? If you're in a family of any kind, some of the things that are in this article really, really do apply. And, of course, when you go, uh, when I was asked to give this talk, I kind of gave Roshi a second look because there wasn't much time. And he said, well, you know, um, you guys always use, tend to use modern things. Now, um, how about using something from, you know, the koans or something? So, uh, but, you know, if you're talking about parenting, there's not a lot in a monastic tradition that really answers to it until you look a little more deeply and then you find that the sixth patriarch, Wei Nang, had quite a lot to say about this kind of subject. So we're going to go through the article, uh, try to keep it short so that there's time for questions and then anyone who has more more depth to answer the questions is fine to, to throw their weight in. Uh, this is relevant right now too because there's a youth task, youth and family task force that has been meeting um, at the request of the trustees and the development committee to see how we could include families more deeply in practice and in the Zen Center. This is a training center, so of course the focus has been um, on training. Uh, and then the Sangha it has, of course, been the major support for that. Uh, but nowadays we have so many um, young families um, who really, parents who want to get involved, and the children, as you've met many of these wonderful kids we have, uh, that this is now, we feel, the time to really embrace um, that practice, lay practice, and bring that somehow into the fold. So this task force of amazing parents, we started out with maybe two or three members, but then all the parents wanted to be on it. So now we have had a large group. They've done some wonderful research, and um, we've come up with some plans eventually to have Youth Sunday every Sunday. Um, and we hope that the rest of the Sangha will, will support um, this, this initiative. So now to the article, which is um, written by a Heather Turgeon. She's a psychotherapist. She wrote a book with Julie Wright. Um, and this is the title of the book. Now say this, the right words to solve every parenting dilemma. Now, wouldn't that be nice if we could solve every dilemma with a book? But that is a very a book that's recommended, along with um, the New York Times now has a section on parenting, and I really recommend it um, strongly 
There's another couple of articles that I only brought for distribution afterwards, but these are the sort of titles. Why do four-year-olds love talking about death? And is your child lying to you? That's good. So um, trying to give some resources to parents and to those of us who are grandparents too, and as I said, to anyone who's working within a family. So here's the article. Which is better, rewards or punishments? Neither. Rewards and punishments are conditional, but our love and positive regard for our kids should be unconditional. Here's how to change the conversation and the behavior. You know, we, uh, this is, aside from the article, we just recited Hakuin's chant. Um, from the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. This is, this is absolutely so profound. And when we're interacting with each other, uh, that's, that's it. This other being that we're with, or it's a Buddha too. And if you have this attitude about, or this response to people, um, in the workplace too, everybody's a Buddha, everybody's trying their best. Um, we're all conditioned. And so to remember this is, is absolutely vital, especially with children, because their behavior can drive you nuts. And uh, we have to at least get beyond the behavior into the loving of the of the child. This practice at its heart is about love, really. We don't use that word very much in Zen, but but it is the whole the whole thing, really. So go back to her. So I feel a sense of dread as bedtime rolls around. Here we go again. A dad said this in our family therapy office one day describing his son's <clears throat> pre-bed antics. The child would go wild as bedtime approached, stubbornly ignoring his parents' directions and melting down at the mention of pajamas. The parents felt frustrated and stumped. They asked us a question we hear a lot. Should they sternly send him to time out and take away his screen time when he acted this way? Punishments? Or set up a system to entice him with stickers and prizes for good behavior? Rewards? Many parents grew up with punishments, and it's understandable that they rely on them. But punishments tend to escalate conflict and shut down learning. They elicit a fight-or-flight response, which means that sophisticated thinking in the frontal cortex goes dark, and basic defense mechanisms kick in. Punishments make us either rebel, feel shamed or angry, repress our feelings, or figure out how not to get caught. In this case, full-fledged four-year-old resistance would be at its peak. So rewards are the positive choice then, right? Not so fast. Rewards are more like punishment's sneaky twin. Families find them alluring, understandably, because rewards can control a child momentarily. But the effect can wear off or even backfire. How much do I get, a client told us her daughter said one day when she asked to pick up her room. So let's take that a little bit into, into Sashin. What, what am I going to get out of this, you know? Am I going to get that awakening thing? And, you know, if I stay up all night, if I don't eat, if I do this or that, we, you know, I deserve a reward. And so uh, just throwing that in there. 
And on the side of punishments, um, it's well-known fact that um, if that sharks have a very high level of aggression, and if you uh, are caught swimming with a shark and you see one and you get all excited and start waving your hands and you can't scream because you're underwater, but um, that will absolutely aggravate the aggression. It will build. We have mirror neurons in our in our you know these have been proven in the neuro neurobiology of our minds. So when we're with somebody, we are mirror mirroring their. Um, their feelings uh, and so these mirror neurons will play a great deal of a role in, in our parenting as well. Over decades, back to the article, psychologists have suggested that rewards can decrease our natural motivation and enjoyment. For example, kids who like to draw and are under experimental conditions paid to do so draw less than those who aren't paid. Kids who are rewarded for sharing do so less, and so forth. This is what psychologists call the over-justification effect. The external reward overshadows the child's internal motivation. Rewards have also been associated with lowering creativity. In one classic series of studies, people were given a set of materials, a box of thumbtacks, a candle, a book of matches, and asked to figure out how to attach the candle to the wall. The solution requires innovative thinking, seeing the materials in a way unrelated to their purpose. The box is a candle holder. People who were told they'd be rewarded to solve this dilemma took longer on average to figure it out. Rewards narrow our field of view. Our brains stop puzzling freely. We stop thinking deeply and seeing the possibilities. The whole concept of punishments and rewards is based on negative assumptions about children, that they need to be controlled and shaped by us, and that they don't have good intentions. But we can flip this around to see kids as capable, wired for empathy, that's the mirror neurons, cooperation, team spirit, and hard work. That perspective changes how we talk to them in powerful ways. Rewards and punishments are conditional, but our love and positive regard for our kids, and all kids really, should be unconditional. In fact, when we lead with empathy and truly listen to our kids, they're more likely to listen to us. Following our suggestions for, following our suggestions for how to change the conversation and change the behavior. Kids don't hit their siblings, ignore their parents, or have tantrums in the grocery store for no reason. When we address what's really going on, and this would be, you know, deep listening, we uh, tend to have reactive or responses ready before we've actually listened. So go back here. Our help is meaningful and longer lasting when we listen. Even trying to see what's underneath makes kids less defensive more opening to listening to limits and rules, and more creative in solving problems. So instead of saying, be nice to your friend and share, or no screen time later, say, hmm, you're still working on sharing your new building set. I get it. Sharing is hard at first, and you're feeling a little angry. Can you think of a plan for how to play with them together? Let me know if you need help. 
Crying, resistance, and physical aggression may be the tip of the iceberg. Underneath could be hunger, sleep deprivation, overstimulation, having big feelings, working on a developmental skill, or being in a new environment. If you think this way, it makes you a partner there to guide rather than an adversary there to control. There's uh, So now just another comment on sleep deprivation. Uh, Roshi's mentioned this book, Why We Sleep, and I absolutely endorse that recommendation. And there is a small part of that on um, sleep with children, and especially with children who are diagnosed with um, ADHD, uh, because, of course, they're given stimulants to help control behavior during the day, but they get ramped up too, and they may not be getting adequate sleep. And uh, it's really vital <clears throat> for all of us to get enough sleep, but especially for kids. And there's another um, aspect, and one of our Sangha members who's not actually, she's in Batavia, but she told me that her daughter, who's now 10, when she was about five or six, was having incredible behavior problems at school. And um, they diagnosed that she probably wasn't getting enough sleep. So um, it, it was that she had sleep apnea from bad tonsils and adenoids. And they took her to uh, 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 ENT, uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor. And, the, and this doctor recommended that they actually remove her tonsils. And they did. Um, because she thought she had sleep apnea. And uh, they did, and she w began getting a good night's sleep, and the behaviors literally did go away. So that's also something in this book. So I just recommend that when you have, you know, that's paying attention to sleep, um, and some children with different kinds of neurological things, like autism, uh, may have uh, difficulty getting enough of the right kind of sleep. So. That's just by the way. Motivate instead of reward. That's back to the article. Motivation is great when it has the underlying message, I trust you and believe you want to cooperate and help. We are a team. This is a subtle difference from dangling rewards, but it's a powerful one. Instead of saying, if you clean your room, you can go to the park. You better do it, though, or no park. You could say, when your room is clean, we'll go to the park. I can't wait. Let me know if you need some help. Help instead of punish. The idea of a punishment conveys the message, I need to make you suffer for what you did. Many parents don't really want to communicate this, but they also don't want to come off as permissive. The good news is that you can hold limits and guide children without punishments. Instead of saying, you're not playing nicely on this slide, so you're going to time out, how many times do I have to tell you? Say, you're feeling kind of wild, I can see that. I'm going to lift you off this slide because it's not safe to play this way. Let's calm down somewhere. Instead of saying, you were rude to me and used swear words, that's not acceptable. I'm taking your phone away. How about saying, wow, you're really angry. I hear that. It's not okay with me that you use those words. We're putting your phone away for now so you can have some space in your mind. When you're ready, tell me more about what's bothering you. We'll figure out what to do together. Engage the natural hard worker. Humans are not naturally lazy. It's not an adaptive trait, and especially not kids. 
We like to work hard if we feel we're part of a team. Little kids want to be capable members of the family and they like to help if they know their contribution matters and isn't just for show. Let them help in a real way from the next time they are toddlers, from the time they're toddlers, rather than assuming they need to be otherwise distracted while we do the work. We had a wonderful example of this actually at the volunteer luncheon. Um, Scott Redding and Danae's little person, Eloise, um, she cleared away all the dishes happily and with great joy. Uh, she took every single dish into the kitchen and put them on the side, and she loved doing it. And I've noticed even at Chapin Mill, if I'm setting up for a rental and I have a kid over there, they love to put out the toilet rolls, and they really are helpful. And so this year we're going to <clears throat> have Friday morning at the work retreat, and Saturday morning we're going to have the kids out at Chapin Mill. We'll supervise them, but first part of embracing families um, into our Sangha more. So the other thing is recommended. Have a family meeting to brainstorm the daily tasks that need to get done. Ask for ideas. Make a chart for the kids or have them make their own with a place to note when tasks are completed. In the case of the bedtime of first child, when the parents looked under the surface, they made progress. It turned out that he was overtired, so they let go of some scheduled activities and protected more wind time down in wind down time in the evenings. When he started to get wound up, his mom wrapped him in his bath towel and said he was her favorite burrito. <laughs> she acknowledged that it was hard for him when she had to work late. Oh, maybe you felt sad I missed bedtime the last few weeks. I know I have. Hey, can we read our favorite book tonight? They made a chart listing each step of his routine and asked for his input. Over time, he stopped resisting, and the tone at bedtime went from dread to true connection and enjoyment. No matter how irrational or difficult a moment might seem, we can respond in a way that says, I see you. I'm here to understand and help. I'm on your side. We'll figure this out together. So to connect this with our Zen, Zen practice, we talked already about um, all beings are Buddha. So having that... Um, Connection, which is our inherent birthright. This is this is everything. We 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 are this awakened person. This true nature is always is waiting to function. Actually, it's always functioning, but we're not aware of it. Um, and as we practice, we develop more and more of this ability to go with the flow, to respond. Um, to what's actually happening, not covered by our preconceived notions and thoughts about, oh, the person we know, oh, we know you always do this, or um, uh, our irritation that we're bringing to it. We, we are able to be present in the moment with it. Uh, one of the, um, and I can't remember who to ascribe this to, so I apologize, but um, it's in this... Uh, Statement said that a bodhisattva is like um, 
responds like beads on a tray. So if you imagine beads on a tray, they they go everywhere, and yet it's not one bead, but it's a whole lot of beads. You can never tell which, you know, how each one will influence the other one. There's not just one root for each bead. They all depend on where they start. And, um, and so this is how, in the best of responses, we are like these beads on a tray. We just, we're, we're right wherever it goes, we go with it. We don't, we don't get stuck. We don't hold back. Um, and our sixth ancestor, Wei Nang, is, uh, he came to awakening, you know, uh, was very illiterate, he, a uh, very poor family, he um, collected, his mother was a widow and he was responsible for you know, collecting firewood and selling it um, in order to support her. And one day and he's going by um, and a uh, someone is reciting the Diamond Sutra and he hears that and he uh, he's immediately you know touched by it and so what he hears is that um, arouse the mind without it abiding anywhere you could translate that a little more um, in let your mind function freely without it abiding anywhere or in anything so this means letting go of the preconceived notions we have. Um, and of course, in parenting, you will have ideas and thoughts about how to handle something, and same in everyday life. But you don't get stuck. What if it changes? But so often when we're in an argument, we, oh, we have our position. I know I do. And, um, and we just keep pushing and pushing. And how about, like the beat, just holding back, listening, really listening, and then responding in that, in that way. And our practice moves us in this direction. We do gain equanimity. And for parents, I mean, as one parent said in desperation, you know, I don't even, if I can get a moment in a day to take my breath and notice that I'm taking it, that's, that's you know, a victory. Um, so it isn't just about sitting on a mat. You can sit... Um, and use silence and, and the, the calm and the letting go of your everyday things. Um, but it's inaction. It's, it's this whole thing is about letting your mind function freely without it abiding anywhere or in anything. And so we are moving in the direction of this you know, awakened mind, of being in our true nature and not being screwed up you know, by our conditioning and by um, by our thoughts and our rigid ideas, um, and uh, it's hard. It's not easy. And the more you have grown up in a system of expectations and um, punishments and rewards, the harder it is to to change that. Um, so I guess that's really all I have to say on this matter. So if anybody has any questions, um, please ask. Yes. 
what I heard you say, some of the things that you were saying about parenting, seems to go equally well with supervising. Absolutely, yeah. So Jeanette's question was that she, what she heard me saying about parenting would apply equally well to supervising. And this is really, anything that is said in this article, I think it applies. After years of, 30 years in management, um, and in a big facility with a lot of stress and a, a medical thing, um, you know, a lot of employees, uh, he, the supervisors who came into who of under my my direction who had problems were those who were very rigid who couldn't go with the flow who really didn't love their employees you know they would just be beside themselves with the difficult people and we all have those in our lives we all have we have difficult children we have difficult parents we have um, it's 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 a monumental task to have extend that love and compassion, but it's absolutely true, Jeanette. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And having the confidence too to to trust yourself, actually, because you 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 feel as a parent, oh my gosh, you know, what if I don't do the right thing? Is my child going to fall apart? Children are amazing. I. I in our group, it's just wonderful to hear how they solve problems and figure things out, and um, they're so wise in their own own ways. And so, yeah. You know, Errol. Yeah. Not only with children and with employees, but with ourselves, just to to trust yourself and to realize you're doing your best. And so many people, yeah, speaking for myself. So many of us, you know, use the punishment, reward, shaming mm -hmm. method to try to get ourselves to do what we want to do. And, and it's really, it's great when you can take that off and, and appreciate yourself as you are and go from there. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Yeah. Anyone else? I'd like to comment. I don't know how related it is, but it's sort of talk brought up in me, so... Okay, go ahead. Uh, you immediately started with uh, this monastic tradition doesn't easily offer insight into parenthood until you walk a little under the layers. That's why I often, in my mind, still see a split. It's my mm -hmm. own. I still don't see them as the same. I see this as one in a way, the Zen center of freedom, this is my life here, and then parenthood is this other angle, and I see them still as two. Um, uh, and I hear a lot of frustration, or mm. um, anger, or disappointment, or torn feelings from parents who are trying to keep up their zazen, keep up their Zen, um, mm. zen center uh, attendance. So that, that really challenges me. Um, that whole split that I still have between the two, and then seeing some scary sides from both. Uh, so, okay, Wayman, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you, you touched on this, so this is just an amplification. But the biggest problem is to be stuck in ideas, and this is what Zen's all about: getting us out of being stuck in our ideas and be able, be able to look freshly at each situation and respond. Yes, you have to have a, a background of, of thought and ideas, 
in most areas, but being stuck in them is the big problem. So that you're just acting uh, like a kind of a idea automaton. That, that causes the problem. When you can really look, really receive the new information, you're going to have a different response. I think, though, that what Jared was talking about was this split between training and a monastic sort of sit, being able to come and sit, and then how do you, you know, be a parent, be a, be a person doing this practice in your everyday life. The whole thing is it's actually functioning freely means this is not when you're just sitting, you're functioning freely right now, um, but you're also functioning freely when you get off the mat, when you go home. So there isn't re I, I absolutely get it, the split, and that's what we all express that. And there is a difference. There are differences. <coughs> Training here is different in the sense that your daily life has a different rhythm to it. But it's not really different from being a parent. You just have more time to sit on your butt and, you know, and get all upset about a lot of things because, because this is a, you know, training is, you know, responding to whatever's coming up. But this, that's what it's trying to do, is to get you to function freely, to respond. But if you just, you know, Roshi will say something like, Jared, and you're supposed to, not supposed to, but you, but you will say, yes, sir, or whatever, or in the army, you know, yes, sir. Was Bill Miller? <laughs> yes, he's a Marine. So, um, you know, um, but it, it should be not that you're responding, yes, sir, because, oh, then I get a merit point or that's what's expected of me. It's because I heard you. Danae, you know, they, you know yeah, what do you want? You know, that's our, that's our life, is this responding. It's, it, that's the bead. I mean, so if we can, um, we'll make mistakes. And we have to, I actually, uh, this is what the Youth Task Force is all about, is how to bring these two movements together and have them in perfect harmony, but respecting and um, offering whatever we can to each side. That's no help, I'm sure, but um, I'm offering. <laughs> Anybody else? Come on, John, Truman, Wayman. <laughs> Donna, Tom, come on. Carol, I got a question. Next. Okay. Uh, from your your perspective of uh, raising children, uh, <laughs> a while you know decades ago, and then seeing your grandchildren today oh, in this in this current culture and the the changes, technological and social changes, what you know your viewpoints of um, yeah. you know, Zen practice and how that. Is there any, yeah. uh, so, you know, sometimes people ask the question, if you could live your life over again, would you, would you be a teenager? And most people say, ah, oh, God, no, you know. <laughs> um, but if I could live my parenting life over in the light of having practiced a long time, having seen the suffering that I've caused my children over, not intentionally, but um, I would do it over. And I think, you know, I would go more with what this is offering us, neither rewards nor punishment, but this responding. Uh, but of course, we're all victims. I mean, there was Dr. Spock, and then there was Brazelton. I don't know, you know, um, in my mother's time. I mean, it was 
you know, shut the door on the child and let it cry itself to sleep. Parents these days have a very hard time doing that without feeling guilty. So um, you're right. It's um, and screen time. You know, this is a big, big issue. These our children are facing the digital age, which is crazy. But um, there's hope with adventure playgrounds. Yes, adventure playgrounds are a big thing in England now, and there's one in New York Harbor, I believe. They have the one in New York has manic old mannequins, mattresses, planks, pieces of wood, and the kids spend hours building things. And you'd think it would be rather dangerous, which it probably can be, but um, you know, they have less accidents than kids in regular playgrounds. Why? Because kids in regular playgrounds are so bored, it's all so terribly safe. So that's why your kid is up on the top of the, you know, the slide, you know, dancing on an, and so, you know, we've taken, in our fear of the whole world caving in on us, we've become so cautious. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some antidotes in this day and age, but I don't know. But it's being a grandparent is so, grandparents always say it's so wonderful being a grandparent because I don't have to you know, do the reward punishment thing so much. And um, yeah, it's it's divine, but maybe parents could not feel quite so, you know, responsible. Uh, and this listening, it works with, yeah, it does work. Um, Doing. Yes, uh, I, was, uh, I was raised uh, uh, with physical punishment. Um, not a great deal, I wouldn't call it abusive, but um, my experience of dealing with my daughter uh, is that um, the the difficulty of dealing with my ideas was, was matched with my difficulty of dealing with my history. With uh, with those habits um, built in um, at a at a precognitive level, really, um, and so um, I, I found that uh, I had to unlearn my body. Uh, uh, had to unlearn my hormonal responses. Um, and uh, I did not want my daughter to experience any physical punishment Um, uh, and yet the only context I had for making that change was the context of of someone who who was shaped with spanking, um, and um, often inappropriate spanking, um, and um, that's that's a level that I found uh, as uh, difficult to deal with as as my ideas, uh, my ego wanting time to uh, pursue my own life. You know? Uh, that was that was uh, 
another realm of, of difficulty for me. But how to foster a child uh, rather than compel it uh, was something my body didn't know how to do. That's a very, very good point. Because actually body and mind are, as you know, not separate. And so we are we have a lot of feelings and the feelings come up before you have put any words to them i mean and so that hands coming up to swap the butt before you even know it you know um so um yeah so it's presence whatever yeah thank you for me Earl, yeah you, uh, many people are touching on the uh, uh you know on the problem of how te- how much of a tendency we have to get stuck in our thoughts, and something that might be worth passing along. My uh, oldest friend, we've known each other since we were teenagers, has been a uh, clinical psychologist for decades, and I once asked him what are the main things he'd learned about human behavior from decades as a clinical psychologist, and he said one of the main things is that when uh, reality contradicts our preconceptions, we don't change our preconceptions. We reinterpret reality to be consistent with our preconceptions. And there you have it. Yeah. I think there are a lot of deep conversations that people can have with each other as a Sangha about all of these things. Um, you know. Uh, we come here, it's very quiet, we do the thing, we go away, but there's a great deal of um, wisdom and help from each other that we can have, and I hope we can um, maybe do some of that uh, really with each other, and uh, I hope that um, the Sangha will um, support the family um, yeah, the family um, mode, uh, task force, and um, and I'm grateful, really, very grateful to to those parents and to um, Chris Maley, who's going to be one of our lead teachers. Uh, he has a, a education degree, and I think it'll be, and he's very patient with the kids, and uh, you know. It'll be wonderful. Uh, so the resources, I just want to say again, this book, uh, we, I think, do we have a samsara library? Uh, we should have a samsara library. One library. One library? Oh, all right, John. <laughs> Sorry. But I mean where we have resources. We do have some resources that are outside of just strict um, Buddhist practice and so forth. And... Um, we are trying to build one for the parents. Um, the Zen of Living and Dying group, uh, we already have some books, but I don't know that we have a very effective way of making sure people in the Sangha know of their availability. So, And then the same would be true for maybe the LGBT cis group, that they would also have some sort of library. <laughs> well, we do, I mean... Yeah, we, we have, have a section, we but have a sec- we have the could sections. we um, make it more, uh, or could we include it somehow yeah, more yeah. easily too? Yeah, I've been thinking about that recently. Just, we have some lot of outdated things that should probably go anyway and, and uh, make room for those. The, yeah. yeah. 
So this book, uh, well, I hope we get it, and I'll say this, The Right Words to Solve Every Parenting Dilemma. I gave it to my daughter for her mother, Mother's Day present. Um, and um, then there's... Um, and if you haven't seen, if you want to see uh, a good way of commun an amazing way of communicating, and you haven't seen Anna Breitenbach on YouTube, um, she's, you have to just look up Animal Communicator. This This... <coughs> woman can really speak animal. I mean, she just, it's amazing. And it gives you some real insight into, the, especially the one on the Black Panther. There's a panther who is completely um, uh, unmanageable in the situation, and she is able to talk to the panther and get back what is really going on. And I think it's a wonderful resource um, on this topic as well. And then the New York Times parenting section, um, you know, I think that's a wonderful thing too. And then sharing with each other. That'd okay. be helpful, helpful to spell uh, Breitenbach's uh, last name. B-R-E-Y-T-E-N-B-A-C-H, I think. But if you just go for animal communicator... It, it might be B-R-A-Y. Yeah, just oh. Google put in Black Panther. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. No, no, the other thing is when we put your talk on the web, which we're going to do, I hope. I hope you. Then there's a place for commentary and description, and we can okay. post, you know, all those resources. That's great. That would be good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I guess we're done. We'll stop now and recite the full vows. All beings without number, I bow to the great endless divine essence. I bow to our Thank you.